protests in Myanmar continue against the country's military rulers, we'll assess how diplomats in Thailand and Indonesia are pursuing a peaceful end to the military coup. US President Joe Biden has nominated the most diverse cabinet in US history, but why are some of his nominees facing a struggle in their confirmation hearings? And how to hail a flying taxi? We'll hear from the developer of the world's first urban port for airborne vehicles, which is taking shape in the UK. Monocle's correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 25th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today are Henry Rees Sheridan who's in New York City for us and from London Carlotta Rebello. Carlotta, Henry, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Um, Henry, as a fellow Welsh person there will be a date in the diary that's coming up in a few days' time, St David's Day. Are you dusting off the Welsh cake recipes there in New York City ahead of the big day? To be entirely honest with you, uh, Tomas, uh, I had completely forgotten about that date in the calendar until you mentioned it, uh, which uh, uh, lapse of memory you will uh, no doubt attribute to... uh, my self-hating status as a Welsh person. (laughs) Well, you've got time, Henry, to rush out and pinch a bunch of daffodils from somewhere. So uh, you're welcome for the warning there ahead of the big day on Monday. And Carlotta, how are things with you? It is uh, another Thursday, of course, so the Urbanist has premiered and you've been sitting in for Andrew Tuck this week. Yes, it's been uh, quite a, a good week for us on The Urbanist. We're doing a whole show about uh, Grand Projet. So these huge developments that ultimately just want to make our cities better. And uh, yesterday I had a pleasure to speak with the people behind the plans to redevelop the Champs-Élysées in Paris. This is a 10 to 15 year plan um, to turn what's one of the world's most famous avenues into a giant urban park. We're talking about nearly two kilometres of um, a park in the middle of Paris. Uh, right now, this is, you know, an avenue with four lanes of traffic, very, you know, bad air quality, if not the worst uh, polluted street in France. Uh, so, of course, seeing a project like this um, is quite ambitious and uh, good news. And I love the fact that it was started by the private sector. So the people behind the shops, the um, retail developers, um, the cultural institutions that sit uh, in, on the Champs-Élysées and its vicinity uh, that came together and funded this study to you know, come up with a grand vision for uh, the area and fast forward a couple of years and it's becoming a reality. So it is quite an amazing thing. That's just one of the projects we're featuring uh, on the show uh, today. Um, But uh, to add to our regular uh, Thursday segment, I want to say that, Henry, I'm very sorry, but I'm stealing your, you know, flat pack news this week because I've been assembling IKEA furniture all week myself. Extraordinary. I, uh, I'm going to have it written into the, my contract with Monica Carlotta that uh, I'm the IKEA correspondent and uh, I'm, I'm very unhappy about you stepping on my toes here. Well, you can both battle it out for IKEA correspondent, a very storied role, as I'm sure you'll imagine, after the programme. But Carlotta and Henry, it's great to have you both with us on the programme today. 
protests in Myanmar continued yesterday as the military's appointed representative on foreign affairs flew at short notice to Thailand to attempt to find a diplomatic resolution to the tumult caused by the military's takeover of the government in Myanmar. On today's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's correspondent Gwen Robinson spoke to us on the line from Bangkok on how yesterday's shuttle diplomacy played out. It was a, a, a very um, abruptly arranged uh, meeting which was kind of sprung on on people. And I think the Thais also looked a little shell-shocked. I think the whole thing was put together very quickly. There happened to be also a meeting arranged with the Indonesian foreign minister, who seemed to be taking some initiative to try and organise the ASEAN group of 10 countries in Southeast Asia to uh, try to get together, mediate with the junta in Myanmar, uh, which, you know, the country is a member of ASEAN and try and get some kind of proposal going. Uh, so far, the, the lines coming out of that kind of shuttle diplomacy are not highly encouraging because uh, the plan is apparently to propose that uh, the junta sticks to its earlier promise to hold an election within a year and, um, and uh, proceed with restoring democracy. Of course, nobody believes them. And there's already been howls of dismay from the protest movement in Myanmar if any such plan went ahead. Monocle's correspondent in Bangkok there, Gwen Robinson, speaking to us a little earlier today here on Monocle 24. Carlotta, it's interesting, isn't it, that the protesters seem to have a huge sway now on any diplomatic outcome to all of this. As Gwen mentioned there, if any diplomatic agreement appears in the eyes of the demonstrators to be giving credence or credibility to the military's takeover, then it's on the streets they'll stay. Yeah, and I think the size of these protests just show, you know, that the coup is not <laughs> exactly going as planned for the military. You know, they're not going uh, anywhere. Um, the amount of people we see um, every day in and out, the images coming from the country um, of protesters uh, demonstrating on the streets. Uh, and especially, you know, the demonstrations that happened earlier this week, um, they happened despite, you know, all the threats by the military, where they basically said that mass resistance would lead to a confrontation that could indicate the loss of life for people. And they still defy that and uh, make sure to take to the streets. So it's quite amazing when you see the power um, and the impact uh, that, you know, people reclaiming their rights, people uh, making their voice heard. It is quite inspiring. And Henry, another turn in this story today, pressure is being put on the military in Myanmar by two of the big social media sites, Facebook and Instagram, who have announced they are blocking the military's account in the country. Given that the internet has become its own battleground in Myanmar uh, since the coup took place, there have been several internet blackouts there since, since the military took control. How effective do you think this move by Facebook and Instagram might be as the generals themselves try to continue to assert some sort of control. Well, to assess how effective uh, uh, the 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 ban might be, you've got to really look at what the military uses Facebook for in Myanmar. Um, one of the primary ways that it uses it is to promote uh, the kind of vast network of businesses. Uh, that the military owns uh, in sectors from real estate uh, to tourism to transport uh, and telecommunications, uh, as well as many other sectors. Uh, in fact, the country's most popular beer, 
Myanmar beer uh, is actually military owned. And at the beginning of the month, uh, the Japanese beer giant Kirin actually pulled out of a partnership with that organization in response to the, 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 uh, in, to the coup. Um, so Facebook has barred military owned businesses uh, from advertising uh, on, on Facebook. Um, which obviously could have as much of an impact on their bottom line as it could have on the on the bottom line of, of any business which is reliant on Facebook for for promotion uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, another thing that the military uses Facebook for uh, is drumming up support for the coup uh, and the military regime among lower ranking officers that use the site. Um, now, while official military Facebook pages uh, appear to have been taken down. Uh, the personal accounts of officers, uh, uh, so the accounts that they use as individuals, are apparently still active, and they can use private chat groups uh, uh, to to discuss political matters and to spread uh, propaganda uh, among themselves. Um, it's also worth mentioning that in response, well, not necessarily in response to this, but as a kind of counter- uh, counterforce to this crackdown uh, by Facebook, the military is attempting to develop a digital firewall to control information inside the country, a bit like China has. And they're turning to Beijing and Moscow for technical assistance with this. So it looks like that there's going to be a protracted battle for supremacy uh, over, over, over the internet in coming years in, in Myanmar. Well, next here on the late edition, it's to Washington, D.C. We head where the Senate confirmation hearings for President Joe Biden's nominees to the cabinet continue. Some of them, however, are seeing their chances of confirmation slim, as some Republican senators argue that past displays of partisanship make them unsuitable for the roles of state that they've been nominated for. Well, to highlight that, let's hear now this portion from one of yesterday's hearings. It's the confirmation hearing for Deb Haaland. She's been nominated by President Biden to be the next Secretary of the Department of the Interior. And if she's confirmed, she would be the first Indigenous person to serve in a U.S. cabinet. And if we can move President Biden's agenda forward together, uh, we can create those millions of jobs. And I have every um, I have every faith that that's something that we'll be able to yeah one of the ironies is these executive acts are actually increase emissions not decrease emissions the keystone pipeline was a zero net carbon uh project here by 2030 how do we address the increase in emission caused by president biden's actions we've seen over the last month senator i would be happy to be briefed on the amount of emissions and um, if i'm confirmed absolutely work with you Thank you. Mr. Chairman, out of time, I must tell you, I'm just concerned about proceeding with this nomination. Uh, the track record and the ideology in the past, I think, will perpetuate more divisiveness and will certainly harm Montana's economy. And that's why I have some concerns. The Republican senator from Montana there, Steve Daines, concluding his questioning of Deb Haaland, the nominee uh, for the Department of the Interior, um, speaking there yesterday. Carlotta, Joe Biden, as we mentioned at the start of this, nominated uh, the most diverse array of people to serve 
in a US cabinet. Uh, the Washington Post last night, in its summary of the, the day's proceedings, characterised the trouble that some of those nominees are facing now as largely falling on those nominees who aren't white. Is that the pattern you're seeing as you monitor uh, the confirmation hearings from Midori House in London? Well, what we're definitely seeing, Tom, is that those nominees whose portfolios fall on quite, let's put it, more sensitive topics and particularly issues that relate to domestic policies are the ones getting a tougher time. At least that's the pattern that is uh, emerging. We heard there, you know, the clip from um, Deb Haaland earlier, where, of course, you know, um, the opposition to fossil fuels has Republican members basically branding her as extreme. Um, But we also saw, you know, um, the pick, uh, Joe Biden's pick um, for uh, the Office of Management and Budget, uh, Neera Tandon, um, is also uh, being criticised by the Republicans after they basically said they couldn't support her. Uh, and this is a trend that we're seeing emerge and I think is going to drag these confirmation hearings uh, for a while now. Uh, the question for me remains, you know, when we have nominations of this sort, uh, as you indicated, you know, quite a diverse list of candidates um, with, um, let's just say, not the traditional background, um, which can be welcome news and should be welcome news to have people with different experiences, different perspectives in any administration. A list like that would always ruffle uh, a few feathers and it's not something that will go down easily. And Henry, looking on at these proceedings from New York City as you are, and looking objectively uh, upon some of these nominees, some of whom Carlotta mentioned there, are those who are having the hardest time during the confirmation process, do you think? Are the concerns about them justified, would you say? Or are we seeing a familiar partisan political tropes being deployed here by some Republicans to make the process more difficult for, for President Biden? Well, to look at the case of um, the two nominees who you've mentioned, I think with uh, Deb Harlan's nomination to be Secretary of the Interior, the support and opposition seems to have broken along pretty straightforward uh, partisan lines uh, with regards to uh, essentially support for uh, either curbing the expansion of or promoting the fossil fuel industry. Um, the opposition from Republicans mainly has to do with uh, uh, Deb Harlan's uh, desire to curb the expansion of the industry. Um, There were fears among Democrats that um, a senator from West Virginia called Joe Manchin III, who is a Democrat but has sided in the past with Republicans on questions of fossil fuel promotion, might not vote to confirm her, but he's now said that he will. So, you know, in terms of whether or not that's... uh, you know, fair or substantive or to do with the issues. I mean, it's, pre- it's a pretty straight up partisan divide to do with, to do with uh, a controversial topic. Um, the other nominee, Neera Tandon, the reasons that have been given for, for opposition to her are slightly uh, weirder, I suppose. So Democrats, actually including Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat who I've mentioned, and Republicans have voiced opposition to her because she uh, she's previously posted mean tweets uh, about politicians, actually from both parties. Just to give you two examples, she called uh, Senator Mitch McConnell uh, Moscow Mitch, uh, and and also have said that vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. Uh, 
And she quietly deleted uh, about a thousand tweets shortly after Biden won the election. Obviously, uh, her op- her opponents would say that that was a cynical move uh, to avoid uh, scrutiny uh, should she be uh, elected for a cabinet position, as she has been. Um, I think the argument against her boils down to that her conduct online demonstrates an unsuitable disposition for holding high public office. Whether or not you think that that's a fair or relevant criterion to judge her by, uh, I think is is subjective. So um, I think the, 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 the validity of the criticisms of both candidates are, are uh, legitimately debatable, I would say. Well, finally here on the late edition, hailing a cab might soon be a very different affair than standing on the edge of a road with your hand in the air, especially if you live in the city of Coventry in the UK, where the world's first airport, that's two words, not one, is being developed. The idea is for the venue to be a place where airborne electric vehicles like air taxis or air cargo drones can take off and land. Well, on today's edition of The Globalist, we heard more on the project from Urban Air Port CEO Ricky Sandu. The concept is to provide a new form of complementary um, public transport mobility, which is called urban air mobility. Um, and urban air mobility um, is created um, by a new type of vehicle, which is called an eVTOL, an electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle, uh, which a lot of people are calling flying cars. And you know, and and the the great. Um, uh, kind of um, opportunity with this new technology is that we can have um, mini urban airports um, in our cities, a bit like the way we have bus stops around our cities and a bit like we have train stations around our cities. So it's a whole new layer of mobility that can be immersed within our dense urban centres. Ricky Sandu, CEO of Urban Airport there, speaking to The Globalist a little earlier today. Carlotta, how groundbreaking do you think this will be? The UK government certainly seems to think that it could be transformative. How, in your mind, might this change our ideas of of transport in cities more broadly? Well, it's quite amazing to see this uh, with, you know, having received uh, government funding in the UK and this is a one of a kind um, uh, project in the world. When looking at the project, what I found quite amazing is this idea of, you know, the sustainable side of air mobility. Uh, they have plans to create, you know, um, different types of ports. Some, the the one that got approval for is to be on land, which is called Terra One, but also to be, you know, almost work as helipads. Another one that could be deployed um, in water too. So if this actually uh, goes ahead the way that they're envisioning and um, is used as much as they're thinking, it could really shape things up. Uh, of course, the image of flying cars and, you know, hailing a, ca- a taxi, etc., is the first thing that comes to mind. But on a shorter term, um, I can really see this being used, you know, for deliveries, for cargo, um, be it with already existing drones of a smaller size or eventually with um, the creation of bigger ones to help with deliveries to certain parts of the country that might not be as easily or as quickly accessible uh, by road um, or freight. So using air mobility in that sense could be in the shorter term quite amazing to see. Um, I don't know how comfortable I would be (laughs) into hopping into uh, a flying cab just for now, but maybe the success story might change my mind.
Well, I would certainly take a flying cab with you, Carlotta, and Henry Sheridan any day of the week. And Henry, obviously projects like this obviously take years of research and planning and development. But do you think with most economies around the world, be they city economies, local ones or national ones, you know, looking for a real kickstart to the to their economy in the post-pandemic world. Do you think more forward-thinking, eye-catching infrastructure projects like this are likely to be more more common, that we're likely to be exposed to them more, do you think? I'm, by default, kind of sceptical of sexy infrastructure propositions like this, um, particularly when they have a little bit of a start-up-y vibe, as this one does. But um, I... I watched uh, an interview with the CEO uh, and he made a good point uh, about uh, the potential utility of this uh, technology in parts of the world lacking uh, physical road infrastructure. He drew an analogy with the way that cellular phone technology, mobile phones, uh, has has really helped connect parts of the world that lack the infrastructure for landlines and and instigated what he called a kind of leapfrog effect, enabling these parts of the world to catch up with the rest of the world. Uh, and, and when you think about it from a, I suppose, developmental perspective, uh, it, it, I think that it could bring uh, a significant benefit to... Um, to, to uh, as I say, parts of the world that are underserved by conventional infrastructure, how big the gain will be in countries that already have relatively well-developed uh, infrastructure, I think is... Uh, I- I'm not a transport expert, so I-, I-, I wouldn't be able to say, but I'm, I don't know. I'm sceptical about the, the idea of kind of uh, uh, flying cars in the sky over Coventry, uh, but maybe that has more to do with my preconception of Coventry than my preconception of, of flying cars. Well, Henry, Reese Sheridan and Carlotta Rabello, that's all we have time for for today's programme. Thank you very much to the two of you for being with us today. A big thank you too to Louis Allen in London. He edited today's programme for us. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow, but we'll have more news for you here on Monocle 24 on tomorrow morning's edition of The Globalist. That begins live from Midori House at 7am London time. I'm Tomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. 